The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Hello, I'm Hayes E2 from Shoot 55, and this morning's script reading is from Acts 12, 19-25. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately, an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you for that, Hayes. You all may have noticed that Hayes is wearing his scouting outfit along with uh, several others here this morning. Uh, This is actually Scout Sunday all around the U.S., and there are actually a lot of churches like ours that sponsor troops. And uh, we have the privilege of sponsoring three troops at Christ Prez. One would be Cub Scout Pack 555, another would be Boy Scout Troop 55, and then the third is Girl Scout Troop 2123. We have 121 Scouts uh, total uh, that we sponsor here at Christ Pres. It's been a, a highlight of uh, things that go on on our campus for a lot of years, and we're very proud of the Scouts' commitment to character and also to serving the community, and uh, great to have so many of you uh, with us in uniform today. So, uh, so I get to uh, open up the Scriptures and uh, share a little bit about uh, insights I've gained as I've studied Uh, this uh, text, and I will start with this, that the Bible, as well as history, are filled with warnings that God opposes the proud. God is against pride. It's not just the Bible that tells us this. It's also history. One uh, well-known person in particular His name was Voltaire, and he was a philosopher during the Enlightenment. He didn't like Christianity at all. In fact, he hated Christianity. He mocked and ridiculed Christianity and the church. And there was one particular uh, day where he predicted that within 50 years, Jesus Christ would be completely forgotten by the world. Now, the same year that Voltaire said that Jesus Christ would be forgotten by the world, that same year, the British Museum purchased a Bible manuscript for $500,000, which was a lot of money at that time, and Voltaire's books were selling for about eight cents apiece, same year. Fifty years after his prediction that the world would forget Jesus Christ in 50 years, the Geneva Bible Study was, or, or the, the Geneva Bible Society was printing thousands of Bibles on presses that had been set up 
in the house where Voltaire had once lived. God poses the proud. And what was true for Voltaire was true before him, especially for this man, King Herod, that we read about this week as well as last week. King Herod is a man who becomes obsessed with his own glory, with his own grandeur, with the sound of his own name, and he ends up perishing in shame because God opposes the proud. And so, so we're going to look at two things today. We'll look at this failed, disgraced king and, and, and what were some of the attributes, what were some of the warning signs to look out for. And the second is we'll, we'll take a look at the little book that rules the world in ways that no king has ever been able to except for Christ himself, who is the subject of the book. So first, the failed, disgraced king. Uh, the essence of failure uh, can be summarized in a single word, vanity. Vanity is failure. Pride is failure. Hubris is failure. Arrogance is failure. Cockiness is failure. Being full of yourself is failure. There are probably a hundred other ways you can think of how to say it. But what it means to be vain is to act like a king when you know deep down you know you don't have the right to. And when you act like a king, when you don't have the right to act like a king, you actually disqualify yourself as a king. You know, Joseph's son uh, uh, was a fairly well-known missionary. He said that 90% of people pass the test of adversity and 90% of people fail the test of prosperity. 90% pass the test of adversity and fail the test of prosperity. Remember that uh, Freddie Mercury lyric uh, from the band Queen? Fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. Herod had fame and fortune, and everything that goes with it, and that's what triggered his own downfall. There, there's this thing about fame and fortune and power and position that, 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 that has this ability to draw out the worst things about what resides in every human heart. You know, Dwight Moody, the, the famous evangelist and pastor from Chicago, said that we can stand in affliction better than we can stand in prosperity. Because in prosperity, it's easy to forget God in ways that it's not easy to forget God in affliction. Uh, you may be familiar with the interview that Ben Affleck, the, the, the actor, uh, the, the movie actor, uh, gave with a talk show host several years ago. And he was, he was actually uh, sharing a little bit about how he changed as a person when he became famous. Uh, and you know, he sets it up by talking about how he and Matt Damon both lived in these little, tiny, rat-infested apartments uh, trying to make it in the city as wannabe actors and, and film producers, and they created this project together called Goodwill Hunting. Many of you have probably heard of Goodwill Hunting. It's what put both of those two actors on the map. It, it launched their careers as Hollywood actors. And Ben Affleck relayed in this interview uh, a, a story about how he was waiting curbside in New York City for a limousine. 
And this was only a couple of years after Goodwill Hunting. And he said he was so enraged, outraged, irritated, angry because the limo was one minute late. It's amazing how we can, we can change from being just hopeful people or grateful people to entitled, ugly-hearted people. And the only difference is we've experienced fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. And I think this was Ben Affleck's point. He said, I, I don't know what it is about me. He actually didn't like what he had become. And he's like, I, I got to put measures in my life to help me not be that guy who suddenly thinks he's better than everybody and the, the world owes him and, and that he's the star of the show and everybody else is his supporting actor in this show of life, or that he's the sun and everybody else and everything else are just planets orbiting around the universe in which he is the center. He didn't want to be that person. Herod didn't mind being that person. And I think one of the things that this passage highlights is that there is a Herod lingering in all of our hearts. And the further we get up a ladder, the quicker we get you know, to the top of a ladder, the more prone we start to view ourselves as the center of the universe. One of the things I love about the Eagle Scouts is that part of being an Eagle Scout, which is like the highest honor in Boy Scouts, right, is you gotta be humble. Like humility and service and character are actually what make you qualified to be an Eagle Scout. And it's also what qualifies you to be great in the kingdom of God. You know, one person, uh, many of you know her, Pam Benton, pointed out to me after uh, the, the, uh, the uh, first service this morning, uh, she said that, that she heard a preacher once preach from uh, the text uh, translated in the King James, where Jesus says, lo, I am with you always, uh, to, which she took uh, to mean, and the preacher took to mean, lo, I'm with you always. When you're low, that's when I'm with you. When you're high and mighty, I'm gone. You're on your own. Let's see how it works out for you in that high and mighty place of yours. What are some of the things that Herod might have seen as warning signs had he been paying attention? One was his own aggression. If, if you were here last week, you remember that he put the apostles James and Peter in prison. He had actually killed James. He'd executed him. He was planning on executing Peter. Why? Because they were starting to become popular. They were talking about this, this carpenter who was crucified, died, buried, and then rose from the dead and, and, and was changing the lives of people in the region for good. And Herod didn't like hearing about somebody else that other people called a king when he wanted to be the king. And he was the king and he was the high and mighty one. And so he started to get aggressive in the same way that King Saul in the Old Testament got aggressive with the young David after David heroically slayed the giant Goliath and saved all of Israel while King Saul was hiding. 
And it says that, that, that when, King, or when, when the young David slayed Goliath, that they started to sing a song. Saul has slain his thousands and David has slain his tens of thousands. And it says from that point forward, Saul kept a jealous eye on the young David. The king who had all the power and all the position was jealous of this young shepherd boy because of popularity, because people were impressed with him, because somehow the glory that Saul thought belonged only to him was somehow being shifted over to this young boy who'd done a heroic, courageous thing, and he didn't like it, and so he tried to run spears through David. He put a bounty on David's head. He hired assassins to go after David to get rid of him. Didn't work out for Saul any more than it worked out well for Herod. Aggression. The other thing that was a warning sign was Herod's posturing. In verse 20, it says he's angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, which is a, a neighboring region. And we don't know why exactly he was angry with them, but what we do know is that they depended on Herod and on Herod's country to supply them with food that they did not have and weren't able to produce on their own. They, they had need. They were neighbors in need, a neighboring country in need. And when, whenever Jesus was faced with, with somebody in need, he would, he would rush to meet that need, right? Let's talk about hungry people, for instance. Hungry neighbors. You know, 5,000 men and their families were hungry. And what does Jesus do? He takes five loaves of bread and a, and, and, and a couple of fish and, and multiplies it to the degree that it, that, that it feeds those 5,000 people and their families and 12 baskets of leftovers are, are, are there at the end. But what does Jesus do as he performs this great miracle? He takes himself out of the way and he says to his disciples, you feed them. You be the heroes. You be the ones who, who sweep in and care for everybody's hunger. You do it. Here's the miracle. Here's the supply. Here's the abundance. I get all the credit, but I'm putting you forward. He takes himself out of the center, hence proving that he's the true king because the true king takes himself out of the center. A true queen takes herself out of the center because he or she knows they're part of something bigger than themselves. What does Herod do with these hungry neighbors? He doesn't feed them. Instead, it says, get this, it says he delivered an oration. He delivered an oration to them. His priority was not helping his neighbor. He, he saw his neighbor's hunger, his needy neighbor's hunger as an opportunity to platform himself. Be the hero. I'm the star, you're the supporting actors. And so, so this moment, but also his whole life was really just theater. It was theater. It says in verse 21 that he puts on his royal robes and, and Herod's royal robes were like excessively shiny. Excessively shiny. You know, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who wrote uh, parallel accounts at this, uh, about the same season of history actually has, a, has a, a parallel account of this actual incident. And Josephus in antiquity says this, Herod is clad in a garment woven completely of silver so that its texture was wondrously radiant and by its glitter inspired fear and awe in those who gazed intently upon it. His flatterers raised their voices from various directions, addressing him as a god. May you be propitious to us 
And that's a word meaning, may you withhold your wrath, your rage, your anger from us. You are more than mortal in your being, the flattering crowds said. So aggression, posturing, theater, and hubris. The historian Josephus continued to say the king did not rebuke his flatterers, nor did he reject their notion that he was a god. Now, the text here in Acts mentions Blastus, who is described as the king's chamberlain. Now, a chamberlain is a, it's like a personal assistant. And what happened in those day, that day and age, in those days, when a king or an emperor would enter into a town or a village or a city riding on high in, in his horse and chariot, that king or emperor would also make sure that his chamberlain was sitting right next to him. And as the crowds were saying, oh, king, live forever, oh, king, live forever, flattering, fawning, that chamberlain was assigned one task. Whisper in the emperor's ear, you too are mortal. In other words, don't forget. Don't forget that there is a shelf life on your fame and fortune and everything that goes with it. That humility is the place of a king. Humility is a place of a leader. Humility is a place of greatness. But Blastus, Herod's chamberlain, offers no such word, probably because he knew better, probably because he knew that he would end up like James, beheaded and underground if he dared challenge the notion that Herod was a god. Instead, what happens, and we're told here in verse 23, and also by Josephus, that Herod fell dead and was eaten by worms. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men could not put Humpty together again. Pride goes before a fall. Now, it's easy for us to look at situations like this and sort of remove ourselves and, and wag our fingers and shake our heads. But isn't it true that there's a Herod in the heart of all of us? That, 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 that inside each and every one of us, that there is on some level an urge to appear bigger or better than we are. I mean, here's a an insignificant or seemingly insignificant, but I think very significant anecdote from my own life, right? So I was a kid in high school who did the minimum to, you know, get the grades that would keep my parents off my back, but I underachieved in high school and um, I got decent scores on my SATs and ACTs, but not enough to get into any Ivy League school, not enough to, to get into places like Vanderbilt or, or Duke or places like that, right? Uh, and so fast forward, you know, a couple of decades later after college, and I'm in New York City and I'm on a pastoral staff uh, whose members, including me, often get asked to speak at gatherings of college students at Ivy League universities nearby. 
And that was primarily because we were part of Tim Keller's church. And he's like the really smart guy and, and redeemers like the smart person's church or consider the smart person's church. And here's, you know, Scott kind of, you know, the, the poser, right? You know, on some level. And I speak at this, this campus meeting at one of the Ivy League universities, and they thank me by giving me a sweatshirt with the name of their university across the chest. And, and for some time, I, I would, when I would go to the gym, I would just, that would be my go-to shirt to put on. And eventually my wife said, why are you wearing that shirt? And I said, well, because it's comfortable. Um, and she's like, no, why are you wearing that shirt? And I, and, and, and she said, is there a part of you that wants people to think that that's where you went to school? And I'm like, no, no, no. And inside I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Because <laughs> we want to appear bigger and better and smarter and more than we actually are. Even though I know better. Even though I know that Jesus welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. I sing it, I preach it, and yet Herod's in my heart. You too, Scott, are mortal. What's it for you? I, I don't know what it is for you. Ask the person close to you. <laughs> I dare you. Where does aggression, posturing, theater, hubris show up in my life, dear children? You know, maybe it's just your home where people are scared to challenge you on anything in your home because you've made yourself the king of the castle. And that's the one place where you know you can control people because you can't do it anywhere else. Or maybe it's at work. Maybe you're up the org chart and that's the one place where you can control people. Or so it seems. Or wherever you find yourself. Herod in the heart, you guys, is not a good thing. Like feeding that beast is not a good thing because that beast gets eaten with worms eventually. It doesn't end well for beasts. And then there's a little book that rules the world. Okay, so I'm just gonna hold this up. I hope that you own one of these. And if you do own one of these, do you understand that this book has more power than a king's position? You put all the kings and queens and rulers in the history of the world together, this little book that sits on your shelf and hopefully sits on your lap every single day of your life with your nose buried in it has more power than all of those rulers and powers combined. It does. And so I want to talk about that. Because as Herod, the great and mighty, self-exalting king, dies and is eaten by worms, verse 24 tells us, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Not Voltaire, not Herod, not a pathetic, insecure guy wearing an Ivy League shirt when he couldn't even get into an Ivy League university. That's where the power is. You know, my predecessor, Wilson Benton, before his sermons for decades would, would quote at the beginning of the sermon every single time from Isaiah chapter 40, all flesh, all people, all humans are like grass. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. But the word of our God will stand forever. 
The Bible throughout history has been resisted, renounced, and burned. And wherever the resistance has been the greatest, the momentum has been the greatest as well. And the Word of God has increased and multiplied. Don't dare defy that which comes out of the mouth of God because in the end you lose. The rest of Acts pictures the spread, the wild spread, the rapid, uncontrollable spread of Christianity in Asia Minor where there wasn't a single place where being a Christian was legal or favored or smiled upon, punishable by death, and it spread rapidly because you can't stop it. You can't contain it. Only it can contain you. You know, the same voice that we hear in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, let there be light, let there be land, let there be oceans, and let there be stars and galaxies and animals and plants and humans and fingerprints and, and five senses. Let, let there be all these things. And there just was. All God had to do was say it and, it, and it was, and it's the same God. These words, same God, same power. In Romans chapter one, Paul says the gospel or the word of God is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. That word power in the Greek is dynamis. We get our word dynamite. There is something explosive here and unending here that you cannot get in a king or a position of power. You just can't. It's time to stop looking at Herod to fix our woes and our problems and to change things. It's time to stop looking at Herod. And to return to the power of God, to the dynamite of God. How do we access it? Again, low he is with you always. Stay low. You know, Jeremiah's preaching ministry is growing. And he notices his scribe, you know, who's writing down all of his words, maybe a little bit of ambition. And he looks at his scribe. The scribe's name is Baruch. And he says, do you seek great things for yourself? Seek them not. In Westminster Shorter Catechism, question one is, what is the chief end of a human being? And the answer, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever, to recognize that God is the Son and everything else, people, places, and things are the planets. And the only way you're going to survive that scenario is to, to just let the gravitational forces keep pushing you toward the center and keep directing you around the center. God, here's what God does. For those who decenter themselves, God platforms them. And, and he's especially fond of platforming the weak. Moses had a speech impediment, and yet God makes him the spokesperson to all of Israel and also to the mighty Pharaoh. He also has a temper. It's a very hot temper. Where do we read about this? In the books of Moses, 
where he's not shy to talk about his own disability and his own bad, bad, bad temper sometimes. There's also a place in in one of the books where it says that Moses is the most humble person on the face of the earth from a book of Moses, which is kind of funny. Even Moses was in process. Even Moses put on the wrong college shirt every now and then. Jonah ran from God. He had contempt, deep contempt for the people that God had called him to preach the gospel to. He was very entitled. Where do we learn about Jonah's running from God and his contempt for the Ninevites and his entitled bratty spirit? Who wrote the book of Jonah? Jonah wrote the book of Jonah. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise, influential, or noble by human standards, but God chose the lowly, weak, despised things of the world so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us the wisdom of God, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. One of my friends likes to say, I thank God for the gift of faith. Even faith doesn't come from us. Ephesians 2 is clear on that. By grace you've been saved through faith. And even that, directly referring to the faith in the original Greek, is not of yourself. It is the gift of God. Everything you have, everything you are that's good, is given It's given. So what will make you a great person? It starts with the recognition that you are not a great person. You are not the sun around which everything and everyone else orbits. You are not the star of the show with everyone else being your supporting actor. You're not. You know, chapters 3, 10, and 14 of the book of Acts, you can look at those sometime this week. Chapters 3, 10, and 14, God gives his disciples magnificent power, power to heal people physically from incurable diseases, not to mention emotionally and spiritually. And in each case, the people present for the healing who witness the power of God that's coming through the disciples did the same thing or or started down the road of what the flatterers were doing with Herod. They must be gods. You know, one group started calling Paul Zeus, the name of a Greek god. In another instance, a man got down on his knees and started worshiping Peter. And in each and every instance, The disciples had the chamberlain of the Word of God in his own ear and in his own heart because he had written it there and hid it there. You two are mortal. And they turned to the people who would worship them if they would only allow them to do so and and said, stop. We two are mere mortals. Worship Christ alone. John the Baptist, the same. The more famous he became, the more humble he became. It's possible, you guys. And at one point, when when the crowds are flocking to him, he's compelled to say loudly to the crowd, I am not the Christ. I'm I'm not even worthy 
to touch his feet. I'm not even worthy to tie or untie his sandals. He must increase, and I must become less. You know, there's so many people in this room, this service, early service, you are crushing it, which makes you vulnerable. You are succeeding, maybe beyond what you dreamed, which makes you vulnerable. The most successful people in here are the ones who need friends the most and who are the ones who are most susceptible not to have friends. We all need chamberlains reminding us of our own mortality so that we can remind ourselves of our own mortality so that we can be in the 10% who by the grace and mercy of God pass the prosperity test. So I had the privilege of attending a ceremony for a man that I've been in a, a small group Bible study with and been going to church with for uh, roughly eight years. And uh, some of you in this room were also at that ceremony uh, where this man received a very prestigious award that got him national recognition. And the most surprised person in the room that he got the... the, 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 the that he got the award was him. I didn't expect this. It's never crossed my mind that I would receive a reward like this. And in his speech, in his sort of acceptance speech to this room full of people who admire him, he started his speech by quoting the first sentence of Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Life. It's not about you. And then he started deflecting the praise and the attention and the credit first and foremost to Christ who gave him every one of his gifts and talents to be able to do the work that he, he does and the way that he does it. And then he started you know, passing credit off to family members and to friends and to colleagues. Because lo, Jesus is with you always. You know what the secret sauce for this man is? I can tell you because I've observed it for eight years. He follows the pathway that we talk to the church about on a pretty regular basis. He follows it. The first three principles of which are be fully present with the local church every single week of your life. Be fully present with the Bible and with Jesus every single day of your life. And take every opportunity that you can to be with your Christian friends so that they can rub off on you and you can rub off on them. And, and the list goes on, but these things are decidedly true about this man. You get formed by practices. You don't get zapped with character. Right, scouts? You've got to work. <laughs> You've got to put it in the time. You've got to put in the effort. You've got to put in the following of the principles to be formed into an eagle, right? Is that true? Or it's pretty easy, right? You can just say, hey, I want the badge, right? And they give it to you. You got to work for it, right? Look, you don't have to work a shred for your salvation. You don't have to work at all for the favor and love of Christ. But you do have to work for character. You have to work to become this kind of person. Philippians tells us, work out your salvation. It doesn't say work on your salvation. It's already accomplished. Work it out like you do in the gym. Take the muscles 
that have been given to you and make them strong. Work it out, for it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. The source for humility, it always starts with self-awareness. John Calvin famously said, we'll never know God until we know ourselves, namely our need for God. So it starts with self-awareness and it's completed with an awareness of who God is. You know, back to Jeremiah who told his scribe, you desire great things for yourself, seek them not. He also said this, and here's the reason why we don't need to want great things for ourselves, because we've already got greatness. He's our share. He's our inheritance. The Lord is. Jeremiah says this in Lamentations 3, because of the Lord's great mercies, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. You know, the people say to Herod, will you be propitious to us? Now, the New Testament also says that Christ came to be the propitiation for our sin. In other words, Christ came to die on the cross to remove wrath, to remove anger, to remove opposition from God, to take it away from us, and then to clothe us, to cover us with garments of righteousness, infinitely shinier and, and, and more glittery than anything Herod could concoct for himself. Which brings us now to the Lord's table, and I'm, I'm excited to invite uh, Kevin Twitt, uh, Pastor Kevin Twitt, to come up and lead us in that. And I'd also like to invite uh, elders and deacons and deaconesses and others who are serving at the tables to take your positions now. And the kids can come back in the sanctuary, join your parents, and uh, let's pray together. And the prayer is going to be from another king, uh, King David, uh, from the 95th Psalm, as he leads us in humility. And so let's pray together. Let us come into the Lord's presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise, for the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Amen.